Good morning. Our uh, scripture reading today comes from Genesis 12, uh, verses 1 through 10. Um, that can be found on page 8 and 9 of the uh, Blue Pew Bible uh, in front of you or around you. Let's uh, stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis 12, 1 through 10. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place called Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he, so he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And, Abraham, and Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Najib. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Please be seated and take a moment to reflect on God's word. I lost count in the first service, uh, but my guess is, and my prediction is, I'm going to say this is really important at least five times. So you can, those who are keeping score at home uh, can find out how many times I say it, because we come to this critical passage. There's so many great things to learn about the Lord, learn about ourselves. Um. The way I wanted to begin this is just for us to think about how you might travel through the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. There's two main ways you could travel through. You can take I-40. So when you take I-40 through the mountains, uh, it's beautiful, but you're, you're traveling at a pretty good rate of speed, especially if you're going downhill. And there's lots of beautiful valleys and, and beautiful mountains to, to take a look at, but your, your view of them is very compressed because you have very little time to really take it all in. Uh, but you could also take the Blue Ridge Parkway. And I hope you've been on the Blue Ridge Park, Parkway, especially in an October on a sunny day. It's really beautiful. There's all kinds of scenic overlooks that you can really take a look at uh, the breathtaking beauty of this piece of geography. And when we turn to Genesis, I would say that Genesis chapter 1 through 11 is like I-40. It's like traveling on I-40. You're, you're going through thousands of years of history to, from creation to the Tower of Babel, and you're looking at these incredible moments, creation, the fall, the flood, and Babel, but you're traveling so fast, 
you don't really have time to to slow down and take a look at it. But when you come to <coughs> when you come to Genesis chapter 12, you hit an exit ramp and you get on the Blue Ridge, Blue Ridge Parkway. You really slow down. So Moses, as the author, is intentionally slowing us down. So from Genesis 1 to 11, you have thousands of years of history. From Genesis 12 to Genesis 50, you have 300 years of history. And so you're supposed to feel this real hitting of the brakes when you come to chapter 11. Moses is is intentionally slowing us down so we can examine the lives of these four people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And when we get to Genesis chapter 37, we're basically going to come to a full stop. We're going to be at this scenic overlook because for for 13 chapters or 14 chapters from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50, we're just looking at the life of one man. So you get a sense of importance for Moses who's writing. Thousands of years for 11 chapters, one man's life for 14 chapters. So you're supposed to feel that dramatic shift. The second thing that you're supposed to feel when you come to Genesis chapter 12 is the manner in which or the way in which God interacts with humanity. For, for, from Genesis chapter 3 to Genesis chapter 11, you have this fivefold refrain of cursing. God intersects humanity and there's a curse put on the serpent or the curse put on the ground or the curse put on the, the people there. Uh, But when you come to Genesis chapter 12 and God intersects humanity, you're supposed to just notice the difference, this sweet refrain of blessing. Look at verse 2. And I will make you a great name and I will bless you. And make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So in five times... In about seven chapters, God intersects humanity with curse. And here in two verses, he's intersecting in a different way. Five times he says the word blessing. And so that's why I called this uh, sermon or titled this sermon, Abraham, the headwaters of God's blessing. You know what, you know what headwaters means? You know what that word means? It's, it's the beginning of a river. It might be some, some uh, streams joining together to form a river. It might be a spring in which forms a river. And so you would say, that's the headwaters. That's the beginning of how the river flows. And all of God's blessings are flowing through Abraham into the rest of the world, into, into the rest of history. And so Abraham is the, is the spring, he's the headwater of God's blessing. It's why in the very first verse of the very first chapter of the very first gospel, Matthew, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. See, this great blessing of the Messiah is coming through Abraham. He's the headwaters of all of this blessing. And Paul says it this way in Galatians 3.14. He redeemed us in order that the blessings given to Abraham might come to us. So these blessings that are here in Genesis chapter 12 is still a mighty river flowing even into our own lives. So we're supposed to notice these Two dramatic changes. One, the way God's intersecting and the fact that Moses is slowing way down 
intentionally want us to take a, a deeper and a longer look at these four people. And so I'm going to just point out three things this morning. We're going to spend two weeks looking at Abraham. And the three sort of features of this overlook. So you might call this the, the, the Abraham's overlook. First, the way grace works. Second, God's promises. And then third, which we'll have to wait till next week, is bewilderment. So we're going to see how grace works. It's a, this is a great picture of how grace works. Abraham's life, Abraham's call. And then we're going to see God's promises. And then next week, even though there's this great call and the way grace works, even as we walk through that, there's a lot of bewilderment for Abraham and I'm sure in some points in your life. So let's look at these first two, the way grace works and God's promises. First, the way grace works. But almost every commentary, when you turn to Genesis chapter 12, they all understand there's this great slowdown. And almost every commentary notes how the call of Abraham is a great example of what's called divine election. Uh, Divine election is God's indisputable right to choose. And so when you come to chapter 12, we find out that God has, has chosen Abraham to be a recipient of God's grace. We don't really know a lot about Abraham. He's just this person who lives in this city called Ur. He has this uh, father named Terah. But w- what we do notice is Abraham, ha- Abraham hasn't done anything to have God's grace on him. He hasn't done anything for God's divine election. What we do know about Abraham is that he grew up in a very prosperous, very progressive, and very pagan city. It, this city, Ur, it's on the, on the Euphrates. And it's very prosperous, it's very progressive, but it's very pagan. And, and in excavations, they found that, that there were more than 700 gods worshipped in this city. And the main god was the moon god. And it says this in Joshua chapter 24, verse 2. This is what the Lord says. Long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, lived beyond the river and they worshipped other gods. So we know that Abraham lived in this pagan city. He, he's worshiping other gods. And, and what we're not told is, is that is, is the story of Abraham's conversion, Abraham's intersection with God. Probably it's not here in Genesis chapter 12, 1. This is the call. But somehow Abraham had met God. And what happens is that in spite of Abraham's belief, in spite of Abraham's behavior, God's grace overwhelms him. And that's the way grace works in spite of your beliefs in spite of your behavior god's grace overwhelms you it 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 takes you over like a a tidal wave and that's the way grace works it's still overwhelming lives it's why we sing this song how deep how strong how wide how high is the is the love of god and it's by grace i stand everyone who stands with God stands by grace alone. You don't stand partly by what you've done and partly by what God's done. You know, you stand by God's grace. It's completely overwhelmed me. That's the way grace works. Now, I want us to notice also how grace works in Abraham's reaction, verse 4. So Abraham went. He's called to go, and so these 
opening three words in verse 4, so Abraham went. One way to confirm that someone has received this overwhelming grace of God is that their faith affects their feet. You're wondering, hey, hey, has somebody really been affected by this tidal wave of God's grace? And one gauge that you would use is, has their faith affected their feet? Abraham is called to go. He's given these, these promises in verses 2 and 3. And then in verse 4, he, he, he went. And so this is one, the first times I'm going to say it, this is really important. Abraham reacts out of the promises of God. He doesn't react to obtain the promises of God. Abraham, Abraham's reaction is out of. It's the launching pad for Abraham's action. It's not, I've got to go get those things. And you see a very similar pattern in Paul's letter to the Romans. In the first 11 chapters, Paul unpacks this really dense theological treatise. And he talks about God's mercy and, and man's misery. And how God's mercy overwhelms man's misery. And then he has this hinge in verse in chapter 12, verse 1. He says, therefore, now that I've told you all about the gospel, therefore, chapter 1, chapter 12, verse 1, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. See, now that you've seen God's mercy, now that you're standing on God's mercy, in view of that mercy, then launch yourself out in the world by giving your bodies as a living sacrifice. So Abraham and Paul are modeling the way grace works. Someone who has received God's grace to go, goes because of God's promises. They don't go to get God's promises. And the reason this is so important is because you can spend your whole life going to church, always trying to get God's mercy, rather than act out of God's mercy. God's promises, the way grace works. God overwhelms. He gives you these promises. He, he is mercy is sufficient, and you act out of it. You don't go and get it. Secondly, God's promises. Just look at them in two pairs. Verse 2, I will bless you, and I'll make your name great. This is the first pair that we want to look at. First, when God says, I will bless you, I think he does mean he's going to give him an inheritance. He's going to give him an offspring. He's going to give him a land. He's going to give him a, a name. But I think the primary blessing for Abraham, and I would say for us, is that Abraham, listen, Abraham was called a friend of God. This is the primary blessing. This is the one thing that, that keeps Abraham together. It's not these things he gets. He gets a relationship with God. He gets a friendship with God. James chapter 2, verse 23. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called, and Abraham was called God's friend. Friend, that is the best blessing you could possibly get. Yes, you might want some things, and they may be good, but the best thing you can have, the best blessing you could get, is just to be a friend with God. And Abraham is, is God's friend, and you hear this very similar uh, tone coming from Jesus when he's in the upper room with the disciples in John 15. This very powerful moment. Jesus is at this last conversation. 
And he's looking around the table. It's right before he goes to the, gar- to the Garden of Gethsemane and then to the cross. And he's looking at his friends and he says to his disciples, I no longer call you servants, but you're my friends. Imagine Jesus saying, hey, you're my friend. That, that's the fuel that keeps them moving forward. Hey, hey, he called me friend. Did you hear what God in the flesh called me? He called me his friend. J.R.R. Tolkien says this, the praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. Let me say that one more time. The praise of the praiseworthy is above all, all rewards. So Jesus, God with skin on, looks at these people and says, you're my friends. That praise is above every other reward. I don't need anything else. I've gotten the praise of God. He looks at me and says, Paul, you're my friend. That's all I need. That's the greatest blessing I can get. Yes, if he adds things to it, great. But the praise of the praiseworthy, the praise of Jesus Christ to call me friend, it's above every reward. So it is with Abraham. And so they move forward on that basis. And the goal of our friendship with God is that then it spills out. It's supposed to spill out to other people. So when people encounter Abraham, they say he's a friend of God. When people encounter this new uh, this new nation that he's going to be the father of, Israel, they say, well, they're a friend of God. When people encounter the church, when people come to Christ Community Church, they're supposed to say, Hey, these people have a friendship with God. There's something about how they live, how they, how they operate that, that just shows me they have this friendship with God. I don't know if you know someone who's a name dropper. You know what that means? They're usually a little annoying. But you get in a conversation with them, and it really doesn't matter the topic of the conversation. They just like to drop in a name. And they always drop in a name of somebody that they think you think is important or maybe really is important. And they always act like they're BFFs with that person. Oh, yeah, you, well, you know so-and-so. Well, we're kind of buddies. And you're kind of annoyed by it. But it doesn't take long before they name drop a name. You know these people. Hopefully you're not one of them. I'm not looking at you particularly. But you see, if you're a friend of Jesus, not in an annoying way. It shouldn't take long for people to figure out, hey, you have a special friend. The way you live your life, uh, the what you do, what you choose to do with your time, what you choose to do with your money. People should say, hey, there's some uh, there's some kind of friendship. There's some kind of gravitational pull for this person. I want to know who it is. And you say, hey, I'm a I'm a friend of Jesus. He he calls me friend. So I don't want you to be annoying about it. But it shouldn't take long for people who run across your path to find out, hey, I have a friendship with Jesus and it affects the way I live my life. Then notice this other thing. He's not just going to bless Abraham with this friendship. He's going to give him a great name. And immediately you're supposed to think of last week's sermon where we talked about the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11, 12. I mean, 11 verse 4. Remember the people? They've come to this plain of Shinar. They want to build this great city. In this city, they need a great tower. Whose name goes on the top of the tower? Your name. My name. We're trying to build a city. 
so that people remember our name. Come, let us build a city and a tower. Let us make a name for ourselves. Now, this is, this is so important. The people building the Tower of Babel were planning on achieving their own identity. The people building this tower were planning on achieving their own identity. See, the, the cultural narrative for the Tower of Babel for the people in this city is you've got to build your own identity. You have to achieve your own identity. You've got to custom design your life and your name has to be at the very top. And think about how closely that mirrors our culture. Think about college students. How often the culture just tells you, you've got to design your own identity. You've got to achieve an identity for yourself. You've got to make a name for yourself. You have to be known. Everything about our culture points us in that direction. We just swim in that sea. Pull yourself, by your own, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Just that phrase. You got a problem? Who's got to take care of the problem? You got to take care of the problem. You got to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And I love this great example. I've used it before. Such a great voice and such a great illustration of our current cultural narrative, Mariah Carey. I love Mariah. I don't, I'm not name dropping here, but I mean, you know, I like Mariah Carey. I love her voice. Just so powerful. Just get, you know, caught in it. You want to sing along with her. And so here's this song called Hero. I'm tempted to sing it, but I'll, I'll refrain. And then a hero comes along with the strength to carry on. And you cast your fears aside and you know you can survive. You're just leaning in like, yes, I can. So when you feel like hope is gone, look. Where are you supposed to look? Look inside you. And be strong, and you'll finally see the truth. What does she say? So well, but so wrongly. The hero lies in you. See, in, the, in our cultural narrative, in the Tower of Babel, you're the hero of the story. You create your own identity, you achieve your own identity, and you're the hero of your story. But so Abraham comes along in Genesis chapter 12, and he receives a great name. He doesn't achieve a great name. God gives him a great name. And so Abraham isn't the hero. God is the hero. And I wish I could just unpack some of the implications for this, but I I don't have enough time. But let's just think about a couple here. If you're the hero of your own story, think about how much internal pressure that creates. I've got to keep my name on top of the tower. That takes a lot of energy to keep your name on the top of the tower. For you to end up being the hero of your own story takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of pressure because it always seems like it's about ready to fall back down. And think about if you do become the hero of your story, how easy it is to look down on other people. See, I'm the hero. I actually achieved. I looked inside of myself and I found my hero. And it's so easy if that's the way you're built to look down on people. If you've achieved your own identity, it's very easy to look down. 
But if you've received an identity, pressure's off. I've just been given an identity. I'm not achieving an identity. I've been given an identity, and I don't. I would never look down. Because I didn't earn it. I didn't do anything to get this identity. God gave me an identity, and so I'm never looking down at people. If you have a grace-given identity in Christ, it should always, always undermine any kind of pride. Because it's been given it's been received. It hasn't been achieved. So important to understand. And then I want us to just see the second pair, uh, verse 2 and verse 7, that uh, this blessing, we're thinking about the blessing, the blessing of an offspring and a land and a nation. So an offspring and a land and a nation. When you think of this offspring, verse 7, you're supposed to immediately go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God, when he's cursing the serpent, he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. See, in Genesis 3.15, it's like the, the first hint of the gospel. We begin to find out that God's plan of redemption is going to come through the woman. Somebody's going to be born. Somebody's going to be an offspring. And this person who's going to be born has the power to crush Satan. But as he crushes Satan, his heel is going to be bruised. He's going to be wounded. And who is that person? That person is Jesus but the thread begins in, at, in Genesis 3, 15, and it ends with Jesus. But as you go through the Old Testament, you can just follow that thread that began with Adam and Eve and then went on to their son Seth and then Noah and then Shem and then Terah and then Abraham. And now Abraham is given this promise, hey, there's going to be somebody that's going to come from you that's going to be the offspring and we know that person to be Jesus. Somebody's going to keep the thread going. And that's going to be Isaac, Jacob. And then we'll move on to the end to where we get to Jesus. So Abraham has promised an offspring. But he's not just promised one person. He's promised a whole nation. You're going to be the father of a nation. You're not going to be the father of just one person. You're going to be father of a whole nation. And so when Abraham leaves his country and he goes and builds an altar... See that in verse 7, he builds this altar, and it's basically like saying, hey, I'm planting my flag here. I've, I've landed in this particular place, and this is the place that the blessings coming to me are going to flow out into the whole world. And what often is missed is the strategic location of the land of Canaan. So you hear it, maybe you don't know much about the Middle East, or you don't know anything about it, and you say, okay, just some land. But no, it was a very strategic location, and it's helpful for us to know that's the God's strategy. The land of Canaan, which is now the land of Israel, is like a bottleneck or a bridge. So, so on, the east, on the western side, the Mediterranean Sea pushes on the land. And from the western side, a desert pushes on the land. So it's this tiny little bottleneck. And to the north is Asia and the rest of the world. And to the south is Africa. 
See, these major uh, movements, these major countries, people and commerce all flowing from the south into Asia or Asia flowing down into Africa, and they all have to go through this narrow little land strip, this narrow little bottleneck, and that's the people of God. And that's the way God has planned it. He's planting his people in narrow little strips, crushed in, sandwiched in by the world so that the whole world has to pass you, pass through your home in order for them to get to somewhere else. It's a very strategic location. If God had wanted his people to be away from the world, he could have easily chosen an island. Hey, you know what? The world's terrible. I don't want you guys to be terrible. Let's just go out to move to Cyprus, build a big wall. But that's not what he did. He's never done it that way. He's always strategically located a church like, like Christ community or a person in a very strategic bottleneck. So you may say, I'm always intersecting these very difficult places. It's strategic. He has a strategy that in other, for the world to be blessed, they need to come through you. God's blessing is coming through. To you and then through you into the rest of the world. So when God's building a nation, when God's building a church, he's building it with a strategy. And it's to be at the nexus of the world, to to be at just the right point. So the whole world has to come through you and find out what it's like to have a friendship with God. So we see this in the land and the offspring The other thing that's helpful to think about when you just think about this land is that Moses is telling us this story about Abraham. But who's he telling it to? He's telling it to the Israelites who are on their way to this land. They're on their way to the promised land. So Moses is telling these people that the land is not a payoff perk for being chosen by God. Hey, as soon as you get here, you can just rest. No. Hey, as soon as you get here, we're on mission. We're just about ready to enter the mission field that's going to fulfill what Abraham was promised back in Genesis chapter 12. We're on mission. We're on this 40-year. You think four years is a tough time to go through school? How about 40 years? They're in this 40-year training to move into this narrow strip of land so all of the world will know who God is. And notice this, verse 2. What is their primary mission? To be a blessing. It's the primary mission for Abraham. It's the primary mission for Israel. It's the primary mission for us. And notice it's not part of the promises. It's a command. I have these certain promises and now that I'm going to command, go and be a blessing. You're not made to be a cul-de-sac of God's blessing, but a channel. Channel, I'm putting you in this little narrow channel. I'm going to funnel in my blessings. I'm going to funnel in the, all kinds of people through the world. And then as they come through you, they're going to be blessed. We try to close with just this one thought on this idea of being a channel. Being a blessing. You can't be a blessing to others unless you're willing to lose things. God's overwhelmed us with his grace. That's how grace works. 
He's made certain promises, and from those promises, we live out of those promises. We don't go get them. We've received them, and so we live out of the promises of God. And then he's called us to be a blessing, and you can't bless others and yet, unless you're willing to lose things. Abraham lost comfort, lost the culture, lost part of his family. Lost any kind of certainty or control over his life because, hey, go and I'll show you a land. What land? Hey, I'm just going to show it to you. When you arrive, I'll tell you, hey, it's this land. When you have a life-transforming encounter with God, when you, when you truly understand you're on the receiving end of this eternity of grace, it eats away at your consumer mentality. You begin to let go of things in order to be a a blessing. You don't become a cul-de-sac. You don't become this swollen cul-de-sac of God's blessing, but you become a channel. So as God's blessing flows into you, it just rolls right through you into the rest of the world. So here's my closing question just for me, for you, and also for the church. Is first of all, have you had this? life-transforming encounter with Christ? Do you understand the mercy that he's shown you? Because if you're here to get, if you're here to, to achieve something on your own, that's not the way grace works. You can receive, you can't achieve. And if you say, well, I think I have had that life-transforming encounter, then here are two gauges, not the only two, but two you can use. First of all, is your consumer mentality being eaten away? Are the things of this world beginning to fade? Is the money flowing to you now flowing out, flowing in a different direction? Because you're on a mission. You realize when you've come to Christ, you've come to begin a mission. It's the beginning, it's not the end. Second gauge, do you have an increasing capacity to lose things? Time, talents, money, emotions, or or are you like a bloated cul-de-sac? You're just constantly on the receiving end, but there's no outlet for you. That's called the Dead Sea. Things run in, nothing runs out. That's not how you're designed by God. You're designed to be a roaring channel of God's blessing. So the more he pours in, the more it pours out. The deeper the channel it cuts, the more you can spread out your time, your talent, your wealth. So I don't want you, I don't want me, I don't want us to be a church where we say, oh, we just have so much here, so much coming into me, so much greatness from the singing or the, the sermon or, or from the Sunday school. I just, I'm just a, just, I'm just a, you know, a de- deposit place for God's blessing, but nothing's flowing out. That's not the way you're designed. That's not why, the way the people of God are designed. They're strategically located. So that as God's blessing flows into you, it immediately begins to flow out and be a blessing to other people. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this man's faith. An incredible faith.
And we pray that um, as we look at him this week and next week, we consider the words that you would have for us. That we would understand how grace flows, that we would not be a cul-de-sac, but a channel. That we would appreciate being placed strategically in a location, whether it's this church in Wilmington or or somebody's life in a neighborhood or a business. It's it's all part of an eternal strategy. So that as you pour out your blessings into people or churches, then they would run through you out into our city and out into particular people's lives. Would you encourage us to see ourselves, to see you rightly, and to leave this place as a blessing to other people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song.